The level of discourse in this age, if I may paraphrase the bard, told by idiots, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. How I wish that last line were true. In times of perceived instability, which is a very nice way to talk about the year 2020, it is important to take stock. What is our church called to be? What is it going to look like? Is it just about being better online, being more clever with the internet? Well, that has never been, nor in this case, is it the proper way to use technology. For it reminds us that technology is a tool. It's just a means, not an end in and of itself. So as we wonder and worry about what the future brings, I reminded of myself when I was 11 years old, sitting at the kitchen table of my, fa <clears throat> excuse me, my father's mother, as she laid out a family tree that extended back to the 15th century. It was literally the size of her dining room table. And I looked at all these names spread out and she knew stories about a dozen of them. And at the very bottom, two little handwritten things was Jamie, 11, and my sister's name, Jenny, six. And even at that young age, I was overwhelmed uh, by that feeling of connection. It rooted me, it, it, it provided visible evidence that my life came to be because these other people, people whose names I had no idea about, simply because they existed, I now existed. And that has stayed with me and arguably given me my love of history all the way up to and including my present age. So as Christians, we too have a family tree that roots us to the wisdom of those who have come before. So as we plan and look forward to moving forward, the risk can be that thinking the best produced services, well, that might be the way to serve this present age. But that simply means that this becomes a question not of theology, but of buying a good, or maybe even the best, camera. And that, my dear brothers and sisters, cannot be the answer. And so in our time together, we return to our roots and learn from the wisdom of those who truly defined what we now call Christianity. So I've chosen two people that come from before Christianity got involved with the empire because they were talking about the faith before that pesky thing known as politics got intertwined. But then I also wanted to pick two from the time <clears throat> of the earliest empire because Christianity in the West in this age is more connected to power than I think many of us would care to admit. Christian voices are being heard in the halls of power. And as we continue on to a, series of, a season of wondering and even debates, it is wise to listen to our founders as they encountered similar circumstances. So let's explore, to give me a few moments here, some Christian origin stories. And that is why I wanted to begin with the perfectly named origin. <clears throat> origin grew up under persecution. He wanted to be persecuted so bad, he wanted to be martyred so bad, believing that that was the highest call of a Christian, that he was going to run out into the town square, even though no one had asked, loudly proclaim his Christianity. But his mom had different plans. As a good mom, she did not want to see her son needlessly sacrifice her life, his life, excuse me. And so she uh, very cleverly decided to hide all of his clothes. And in that day, modesty went out over martyrdom, because while he was willing to die, he was not willing to run into the town square buck naked. Moms, they're very, very resourceful and very, very necessary. And it's great, and we've benefited from his mother's uh, wise decisions, 
because Origen is arguably one of the most influential Christians in the history of Christianity. He was quickly recognized as someone of tremendous academic ability, and he began a career in teaching. But along with his powerful intellect was a powerful imagination and creativity. We can thank him for such diverse um, disciplines as systematic theology, text criticism, commentaries on the Bible, and of course, spirituality. Origen was a man of the church and offers us today a great example of a man whose intellectual passions, skills, were constantly utilized in service of the church, as well as his imagination. He frequently traveled, he would arbitrate and, uh, and argue between two people and rightly became known as a defender of the truth faith. He would bring profound ideas into systematic order. He would posit crazy creative theories, the idea that there might be multiple, perhaps infinite universes that are similar to, but different than this one, something that people talk about in this present day and age. He talked about the idea that souls were pre-existent. So when God says in the Old Testament, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, he would say like, ah, clearly before they were in their mother's womb, these two had done something and Esau had done something to offend God. Now, whatever your thoughts on that, whatever your beliefs, whether or not you agree with that or not, what we look at in origin is a man who existed before creeds, before councils, and was finding creative and inspiring ways and intellectually rigorous ways to bring about the Jesus event and its longevity and its mission to change and alter the world. He helped us to understand that the Bible, in his arguments, true to his Alexandrian roots, there's a literal level, the historical things that actually happened. There's a spiritual level. We think of like the teachings of Jesus, the parables. And then there's an allegorical level, which he cleverly would talk about when God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. How big were God's feet? And he raised that as a question. How big are God's feet? Or is this an allegor allegorical understanding of the union between humanity and God that existed before the fall? So when we look at origin, we are plunged into a frantic thought world where rival ideologies were coming up for sure. And they were competing for the, the best explanation of the Jesus end in ways that sought to answer the questions Jesus' life, death, and resurrection continue to present to us. Next, we look at Tertullian. And unlike others at his time, he was no lover of the classicalism of his age, which led him to quip his famous line, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? In other words, how can philosophy truly help us understand the faith? And this is something, again, in this day and age, we need to recapture. Theology is and can be influenced, but must remain distinct from the philosophical trends of this age. If I have one complaint about Christian thinking nowadays, it is just so much reiteration and reframing of current beliefs. And in that, less than the language, less than even in the beliefs and the doctrine, can actually accomplish watering down the gospel effectively. This was a person who was a staunch proponent of apostolic succession, believing that unless your church could tie itself to one of the apostles of Jesus, the truth was suspect, because the truth is what we are after, and in the words of Jesus, it's the truth that sets us free. Therefore, the truth must be defended. And while his apostolic succession included Rome, he was also never afraid to challenge the bishop of Rome. He wrote against the bishop. He wrote against Gnostics. He wrote against infant baptism. He wrote against the Marcionites and any who aligned themselves too close with the powers of the empire. He even rejected the Catholic Church eventually and joined the Montanists. And I would love to talk to you more about that, but we simply don't have the time. 
I want you to understand that this Tertullian was, above all things, a truth seeker, a very grumpy truth seeker, but a truth seeker nonetheless. And most importantly for us right now, the first terms we see, the first time in Christian theology, we hear and understand the idea of the Trinity. It's from the pen of Tertullian, as he wrote about the, uh, the Trinitas in his work against Praxius. So, the Trinity, reflections on philosophy, these are thanks to Tertullian. Next, we have our dear hero, Athanasius. Cruelly nicknamed by his rivals as the, quote, black dwarf, based on his skin color and diminutive stature, Athanasius has long been held to be the greatest defender and champion of Nicene Christianity. Because he saw the dangers of Arianism and believed that it was doing to Christ under the guise of monotheism what the pagan religious systems had done by building a pantheon of deities to worship. For him, the issue was salvation. Jesus, God the Son, could not just be similar to God the Father, but had to be the same, had to be identical. That comes down to a difference in the Greek of one letter, literally an iota. Is Christ similar to God the Father, or is it the same? And for the champion of Nicene Orthodox Christianity, Athanasius was willing to die to defend uh, that, that very powerful distinction. He would make memorable lines like, the equality of the Father and the Son was like the sight of two eyes. For if Jesus was not fully God and fully human, but if he was not fully God, then his death failed to accomplish the salvific ends that Christians were arguing there were. And this is at the very beginning of Christianity's relationship with the empire. This is in the very first ecumenical council, the Council of Nicaea, brought together by the converted emperor Constantine. So Athanasius, defender of Nicene Christianity, the one who maybe above all others, and I mean, he was exiled five times, but maybe above all others, defended and brought, continued to breathe to life the idea that God the Son and God the Father are equal. And because of that, we are all saved. And our last brother in the faith is Augustine. <clears throat> and we could be here for people build their entire careers, because I mean, I don't mean this facetiously, but I mean almost everything any Protestant or Catholic has ever thought has Augustine's fingerprints somewhere on it. Born in the year 354 in the village of Tagasti, his father was a pagan, but his mother, Monica, was a Christian. I like that we bookended these two with, with uh, men that we have to thank their mothers for the fact that they existed and had the influence that they did. Uh, his father and his personal works of the Confessions is rarely referenced. But his mother was a very influential force. And he talks about the fact that she prayed for him and she prayed for his conversion. And ultimately, clearly, she was successful. Augustine's brilliance meant that he was also very unhappy with the existing thought patterns of his day. Plus, he was young. Plus, he was given a good education. And like many young people at school, he took a turn to party. He became a Manichaean in a while. And he was very intrigued by their, their argument that the kingdom of darkness operates from a separate sphere from the kingdom of light and that it tried to impinge on it. They rejected the authority of the Old Testament, the problems for, for the Manichees, and what they would argue was that Jesus was crucified on every tree because this Jesus is just the story of light battling against dark. And Augustine will talk about this quite a lot in his confessions and ultimately condemn himself for holding such docetic beliefs. 
But like Tertullian, he was not just a regurgitator of the common beliefs of his age, but a brilliant, genius-level challenger of them. He would talk about everything from just war. He would dig into, in the Donatist controversy, he would talk about the fact that the sacredness of the sacraments has nothing to do with the clerical worthiness, but has everything to do with the grace of God. He would formulate profound interpretations of the scripture. He would go up against Pelagius. Pelagius is a person that very much speaks to this present age. Um, Pelagius would make arguments, for example, that Eve's sin affected only Eve, that Adam was created mortal, and here's the important one, that children were born free of sin, that the law and the gospel both prepared people for eternal life. Some Old Testament characters were actually sinless. The rich have to give their money to the poor to be saved. All these sound like great ideas, but Augustine saw in them a very subtle and very dangerous idea that, again, I want to reiterate, is very compelling in this age. Pelagians saw grace aiding good choices made by human free will and agency. The grace without which human beings can do no good is the gift of free will itself. But Augustine's experience, his own ruthless and rooting introspection on himself taught him that knowing and doing the right thing are often independent of each other. The will is corrupt. It needs to be cured if it has any hope of pleasing God. So Augustine, more than his rivals, understood, honestly reflected the struggle each person has within him or herself. He understood humanity's desperate condition, God's graciousness in the offering of salvation. He knew the mind's deviousness and self-deception and the impotence of intellect against the passions. True, his views would lead to an unhealthy level of superstition regarding, for example, infant baptism. His own views on sex and sin had more to do with his weaknesses and his issues than with the Bible's much more healthy understanding of teachings of sex and, of course, on women. But his books, Confessions and the City of God, are major works that every single one of us should dive into. The City of God, specifically, is a challenge to human society, to human desires, to human power. And a, and a challenge to Christians to choose which city he or she wishes to be a part of. For Augustine sees his task as clearly marking out the parameters of each one of those choices. Augustine concludes that the purpose of history is to show the unfolding of God's plan, which involves fostering the city of heaven and filling that with worthy citizens. And for this unbelievable eternal purpose, God initiated all of creation itself. And in such a grand plan, the fall of Rome is insignificant. And again, if I may, like I did with the Bard, in such a grand plan, COVID and this year 2020 is insignificant. <clears throat> these are very, very criminally brief explanations of these four monumental thinkers. But as I wind this down, as we prepare to go on with our day, there are a couple things I want to share with you this morning besides the collective wisdom of these four church fathers. Because besides that, besides their faith, these four men had something else in common. These men were all African. One of the divisive themes of our day today that's going on, not just in the United States, but throughout the Western world, is Black Lives Matter. There's many, many arguments that are taking place. It has proven profoundly divisive. It has uh, inspired uh, violence 
and it has caused a lot of heated debate in the press, and I'm sure as you're probably experiencing within our own circles of friends. On one side, it talks about the fact that this, this trumps certain people's lives over top of, for example, police officers. But on the other side, there's the arguments that this is the most humane, that we must listen, that this is our moral duty, our civic duty, to undo the historical disenfranchisement, disenfranchisement excuse me, and oppression of entire groups of people based solely on race. And at the risk of sounding overly um, grandiose, I would like to add one more level to the discourse of this. Listening to African voices is the Christian thing to do, not just because it combats the racism, disenfranchisement, but also because it is from where we have learned the faith. If you would consider yourself a truth seeker, if you believe in a triune God, then my brother, my sister, you were a child of Tertullian. If you were involved in biblical studies, either in your academic or your church life, if you struggle with the interpretations, allegories, if you desire to see the scripture, the corpus of it, put into some sort of systematic order so that you can communicate it, well then you are a child of origin. If you believe that Jesus Christ is God and God the Son is equal with God the Father, well, you stand with Athanasius. And if you have been influenced or think in any capacity as a Western Christian, be you Catholic or Protestant, as I stated earlier, you've got to claim Augustine as at least part of your fatherhood. And the truth is, I, myself, as I stand here today, am a believer because my ancestors listened to African voices. If you care to debate this, or wonder about this, or maybe even challenge me with trying to hop onto some sort of trendy bandwagon, I want you to look at the sacred art that is here right now. I want you to do a Google search yourself. I want you to see if you can find a picture of one of these men and when they actually look like the African ancestry they rightfully claim. Perhaps Athanasius, because again, as I mentioned before, he was cruelly nicknamed the Black Dwarf by his rivals. In fact, one of the few um, examples of Augustine, arguably the father of Western Christian thought, uh, one of the few uh, examples I could find of him is right here. A wonderful artist uh, who has a website called The Modern Saints by Gracie, and this is her painting of Father Augustine. We need to recapture the faces behind the words that shape the faith. And for my part, I believe the Western Church needs to be aware of the complicity and ongoing marginalization that has transferred Christ in some communities to being more of a white man's God than a God of the world. So if my black brothers and sisters, or for my indigenous brothers and sisters, or people of color, both brothers and sisters, are telling me that their experience of life is harmful or scary or filled with fear, and I believe it is my role in the body of Christ to listen to them first, have the humility to recognize the truth in their statements, even if it is not my lived experience. And then, in the voice and the path of the prophets, cry out and work against systems that are harming my brothers and sisters. And I'm getting many things wrong, even down to the ignorance of the terms that I'm supposed to speak. But I must recognize that I'm going to continue to get many things wrong, and God grant me the humility to ask forgiveness for those I offend. But I also recognize that perhaps this is one of the reasons why I'm so hesitant to even bring this up. 
why I was utterly terrified to preach this morning, because I don't want to get it wrong. I don't think of myself as a racist or prejudiced, but of course, that is foolish. I don't want to avoid this whole awful sticky mess for fear of offending, but also because it is scary and it is complex. And I am only now realizing that that is actually part of the problem. For again, there are people out there for whom Christ is a white man's God. There are people out there for whom Christianity is a faith of the slaver, faith of the oppressor and of the conqueror. Yet Christianity is of course not a white man's faith. But I'm beginning, just beginning I must admit, to see that as the art and your Google search will know to evidence, it has become whitewashed. And I believe that is something we can actively argue and fight against. So as I remember that family tree laid out on my grandmother's kitchen table, and think of the way in which it grounded me and connected me to the people that are responsible for my life, it gave me a sense of destiny. It gave me a sense of purpose. It gave me a story. And I see now that for my African brothers and sisters, due to the abomination of slavery, had such stories stolen from them. Many brothers and sisters at this very school have no idea if they're descended from kings or queens, merchants or scoundrels, clergy, theologians. But I do know that as I look at these four men, I'm confronted with the fact that your African ancestors taught my ancestors what to believe. That belief was passed down to me, and so I owe my very faith. I owe my very destiny. I owe my very sense of purpose and my privilege because those things were just given to me. I may not share your biological or ethnic roots, but African voices taught me how to frame my faith, and that faith has shaped the course of my life. And that means, according to the Bible, that we are family. And that means that your struggle must be my struggle. Not because it is the right thing to do, which it is. Not because it is the humane thing to do, which it is. And not because it's the trendy thing to do, which is very problematic and is short-lived. But I hope, as I've argued, it is the unique way we can manifest the body of Christ in this day and age. As Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 to 29. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. There is no Jew or Gentile. It's a pretty powerful comment on ethnicity. There is no slave or free, not only talks about the abomination of slavery, but of course, socioeconomic and social status in that world. There is no male or female. The gender equality must not be part of the body of Christ. So what is the post-COVID church to look like? The same thing as always, like the body of Christ. It is the Christian thing to do to listen. And to do otherwise is to step away from an opportunity to live as the body of Christ. It is the biblical calling to listen and how, learn how to literally embody Christ. And so I present a challenge that if you do look like me, it is a season of listening, honoring, and action. 
and remember that historically we have all benefited from listening to African voices. So forgive me for so slowly coming to realize that this world's current struggle will alter it. The desire to rediscover the voices of black, indigenous, and people of color is also a help us to discover in the words of St. Paul that we're all children of God. Amen.